Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times bestselling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World, we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological, this can be neuropsych, this can be physical, this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines, these beautiful horses that we work with, help us with. Thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome back everybody to Equine Assisted World, where we talk to people who are helping our species, humanity, with the assistance of these incredible beings that we call Equus Equus the horse. And the reason, as you know, that we call it equine assisted world rather than therapeutic and so forth is because it's such, it's, it's grown so exponentially into such a wide field in the last 10 years or so that to limit it to just one form of a therapeutic approach of course, would not do justice to the, to the, to the universe and mosaic of really interesting work that is out there. And so with that in mind, we, as you know, look internationally for the first time on the show, we're going to be talking to somebody in the Netherlands and the Netherlands is an interesting place because it's both a very forward thinking and some would say liberal, others would say enlightened country, both in education, therapeutic approaches and so forth. And also it's rather rule-based. So navigating that rather interesting mix of how to supply and deliver services is not without its challenges. And yet at the same time, one is dealing with a country where the acceptance of alternative therapeutic approaches and so on is well established. And someone who's been at the center of that for the last decade or so is my guest today, Carola Beekman. Carola Beekman from the Netherlands, who has bootstrapped a really cutting edge approach to equine assisted work there over the last decade or so. And her organization, Maheo, which is near Arnhem in the eastern part of the Netherlands, is doing work both in and outside of the mainstream and in and outside of horse training, not just working with special needs that brings really some unusual and very, very valuable contributions to the work. So Corolla, welcome to Equine Assisted World. Thank you for coming on. Can you explain to us the word maheo, what does it mean? Maheo is a Hawaiian or Polynesian word, and it means proud, pride. I saw it in a, in a movie about a troubled girl went to a farm with horses, and that place was called Maheo. And I always told myself, if I ever get my own place, it will be called Maheo. So proud, proud to be yourself, proud, pride and yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, to become well, proud of who you are. So we help you to become you and be uh, really proud of yourself. That's a wonderful place to begin. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So can you tell us who you are and perhaps how and why you got into this funny old business of the equine assisted world? Sure. I live in my with my husband and my daughter in a little town called Dremt, which is about 20 kilometers from Arnhem in the east of the Netherlands. And I started my career as a teacher and already during my my days in college, I chose the path of the special needs kids. One of the reasons was is I am myself as oh, I was myself a special needs kid. And yeah, after a 20 years in working in schools, first as a teacher, then as a special needs coordinator, coach for teachers, etc. I did my uh, school principal educational program and decided that there wasn't a school that I would like to lead because the way I wanted it, it didn't exist. So that was one of the reasons why I quit working in schools. And in the meantime, I've been also always been a horsey girl. I was the kind of girl who had her walls plastered with pony posters and would get any moment to to go to a pony near to feed it a carrot or something and to give it a a brush or whatever I was allowed to do. So I also really became interested in horse training. So at the end of my career as a school teacher, I was combining it with being a horse riding instructor. And for that, I did clinics abroad, went to all kinds of interesting places like South Africa, Kazakhstan, Qatar, Texas, South Africa, and Finland too. And that was cool. And then there came a moment where I could combine the two, the special needs kids and the training of the horses. And yeah, that's when this all got started. Nami, you say that you were a special needs kid yourself. That's really intriguing. What type of special needs kid were you? Well, it was, first of all, I really struggled to learn how to read. That was one of my earliest struggles. The other one was concentration. I was really good at concentrating where the fly in the classroom was and not as much paying attention to what I was supposed to do. I was also one of those kids who never could figure out when which subject would be. Like after a short break on a Thursday, everybody would pull out their geography books and I was like, why are you doing this? And it turned out that every Thursday after the short break, we got geography. I had no idea. So the whole time and awareness, it just wasn't there. And the other thing that happened later in is that I got really badly bullied. And it became so bad. I got so stressed out that I lost all my hair. So at the age of 12, 13... I was completely bald. I just had one or two little hairs here in front. 
and the rest of my hair was gone, pure due to the stress of being bullied. That's um, a, a very, very hard thing for a, an adolescent girl to go through, as you said. So you say, you're saying right at your, as basis puberty hits, you lose yes. your, your hair in school. That had to be yeah. something of a nightmare, surely. Definitely. And not just for me, for my parents as well. Uh, of course, I heard that later, especially from my dad, how much he worried about me. But yeah, there were definitely suicidal thoughts at times. But I couldn't figure out how to leave this life without hurting other people around me, like my family. So uh, that's what kept me going because I didn't want to hurt other people. Um, but yeah, it was a, a tough time, definitely. Were you involved yeah. in this? And uh Did this help you get through that? Yes, actually. I was in a pony club. It's just starting because I remember one time we had a jumping lesson and I was always there with my helmet on, right? So nobody really knew or saw. And uh, we had a jumping lesson and I fell off. My helmet fell off and one of the dads rushed to me to come and help me and he was just totally in shock because I was bald. So yeah, I around that time I started to spend a lot of time with my neighbor's horse or a pony actually. Yeah, and that, that definitely helped me to have my happy moments uh, outside of school. And also I was blessed in a way because I was um in my secondary school in my own small town, which was a blessing and not the opposite of blessing again. Yes. <laughs> it was also not so good because, yeah, curse. Thank you. I lost the word. Because, you know, people in a village, they, they gossip about you, but also it's sheltered, right? So the kids in my school, they, they know, they knew who I was and, and yeah, accepted me for what I was. So, in my secondary school, which was during that time I made that transition when I was bold. Um, yeah, it was okay there. It was, of course, still hard. But the girl that used to bully me was didn't go to that same secondary school. So I was, yeah, we were separated because of the school change. And yeah, then I slowly started to heal again. But uh, yeah, that pony uh, every minute out of school, not having to do homework, I was there. So, yeah. So you and, you, and the pony young. Just tell me quickly. I, I don't mean to make you dwell on a, a, a painful time, but it, obviously this is gives one. No, it's okay. Yeah. How long did it take for you to get to a point where your your stress levels, your cortisol levels? could come down enough that your hair could regrow and you could feel the confidence to then go on and clearly, you know, do well in secondary, you know, later education and so on to the point where you could be thinking about becoming a school principal, because obviously that takes quite a lot of confidence. Can you just mm -hmm. talk us through a little bit about how that shifted for you? Because I think that will inform a lot about the equine assisted work. Yeah. 
Well, I, it took me about until the end of my second grade in, in secondary school. So about two years to, to get my, my feet back on the ground. And that the main thing why I remember that so clearly, because then my, my grades really went up. I remember the, the headmaster of my primary school said I, I should go to the lowest level of secondary school because I couldn't deal with more. And luckily my parents supported me and I went one level up. Um, and I really struggled the first two years because of all the stress and all the, well, I now know all the cortisol. And yeah, at the end of the second year, my my grades went up and I started to feel more okay. And during that time, I was really active in, in the pony club. And we had competitions nearly every Saturday, which we went to in a big truck, load up all the ponies and go somewhere around in our area to go out for a day. And those Saturdays were a blessing for me to to hang out with the horses and with my friends and do the dressage and the jumping. So I, I kind of lived for those Saturdays. Yeah, they they really helped me through that period. Well, that that is somewhat surprising because, you know, my, my memories of competing as a teenager, which I did a lot of too, I found it quite stressful. How did you deal with it, given that you were suffering from stress, you know, to the point that your, your hair had fallen out and so on? Did you not find the same stresses in the competition world of riding, or did you somehow manage to make some sort of separation in that in your mind? What was going on there? Yeah, I, I guess for me, the, the joy of being with my pony club, with all my friends, and also, especially for the dressage part of it, I was pretty good. So I, I didn't really have to struggle to get all my points to, to get to the next level. And I think that also did a lot with my confidence because, well, once I was like 16, 17, I rode at, at the highest level of my pony club and I could kind of start helping and coaching the younger kids. So I think for me, the, my mom, in hindsight, my mom said, you, you were really nervous every Saturday morning. She couldn't say anything to me and I would snap. I don't really recall that. How unusual for so, it. So uh, it must be true. <laughs> so, so yeah, there was definitely some stress, but I think it was like more like a, a stage fright kind of stress, not really that uh, trauma stress. It's 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 a different feel. Yeah, I I hear you. At uh, least for me. And yeah, th there's a bit of a clue in what you were saying there too. You said that you were really enjoying being with this group of friends in the pony club. So you found community and some sort of tribal yeah. familial support there. Yes. Why yeah. do you think that... And, and the, the, go ahead. You go ahead and I'll, I'll come back to this question in a minute. Yeah. The interesting one is that the girl that bullied me in primary school was at the same pony club. But okay. because we both were a bit older... Yeah, we, we got along. It, it was my mom who really could never forgive her for what she did to me. 
But for her and me, myself, it was a non-issue at that time, really. So you managed to make I, I, that, I mean, that's interesting. I question. Yeah, I, I actually, I never asked her, but I actually don't think that she remembers it like that she bullied me. And and later on, when I went to college to become a, a teacher, I I also learned that the problem is with the one that bullies and not the victim of the bullying. That really gave me a different perspective on her. Like she, you know, she lived on a farm. The rest of us all lived in the village, so she might have felt like an outsider herself and needed to, I don't know make herself bigger and more important to feel seen or whatever. So, but yeah, we made peace with it and we did pony camps together and competing together and it was all good. Yeah. My mom, my mom held a grudge, which I can also understand. That's a really, really good insight. I think it's quite rare for somebody to have gone through that full cycle of being the victim, going through the suffering, making peace with it, forgiving the perpetrator, then making peace with the perpetrator and going on to forge a new relationship with them. At mm. that young age, that must obviously inform a lot of the work that you do now. The fact that you could, do, do you feel? That because you managed to um, go through and not stay in the victim role, that must give you insights now into the populations that you're working with in the equine assisted world. Would would you think? Yes, absolutely. There's always a deeper uh, meaning behind behavior, you know. People are not mean just because they're mean or, you know, there's always a story behind it. And for me, it's always very interesting to uh, find the story, like what is hurting you? What is frustrating you? What's, what's the story behind your anger or your dominance or in, in other cases, why are you so introvert what, what's the story behind it and that's always for me a trigger to really get to know the person and then help them through whatever is bugging them that makes them behave the way they behave so yeah definitely okay so you you also told us that you had a natural penchant which i guess also must have helped as you said with your regaining of confidence in the dressage I do know mm -hmm. that you went on to have and pro and still do have quite a full career in dressage training, just so that people listening can understand your background, because we're going to talk about how you've brought that into your equine assisted work. Can you tell us a little bit about the mm -hmm. uh, dressage path that you followed? And then we can return to that in the context of, of the equine assisted work in a, in a mo. Yes. So, of course, in the pony club and as a young adult, I just did what everybody did, the, the, the English way of riding. And then I stumbled upon a horse, which that didn't work for. 
and I got to know a an instructor who uh, came from the academic side of the horse training. So really from the old way of horse training and, and instead of a horse for the dressage to make us look good and fill our egos with being beautiful and doing cool stuff, totally reversing it and saying, okay, this is dressage for the horse. So we look at this horse, we see what this horse needs, and then we use these particular exercises to build up this horse. So strengthening the hind legs, flexibility, balance, all that stuff really tailor-made to the horse. And that is what really got me excited again. Also because of the, after the birth of my daughter, I wasn't interested in, in the competition anymore. One, because what I saw at the competitions is how other people mistreated their horses. That really made me sad. And the other was really practical with a, with a baby. You don't have time. At least I couldn't make the time to compete. So reversing that process, like, okay, looking at each individual horse and what do you need to gain your strength and flexibility, but also their confidence is, yeah, a big shift I made in the horse training. And that, of course, is in a, has a strong relationship with how I work with the kids I work with and the adults is not, this is the program. You were going to do this program and you need to fit in the program. No, we're, this is who you are. I have this framework, uh, but we're going to totally tailor make it to your needs. So that's for me, a big parallel between the horse riding and the equine assisted work we do. Tell me, tell us a little bit about this horse that changed your, your way of looking at the dressage. What, what was going on with this horse? What was the story? Yeah. Okay. His name was Macho. I got him when he was two and a half. He was my first horse after my pony career. He didn't know anything, so I had to train him myself. And it was a huge struggle. Um, nine years later, after many people had told me to get rid of him because he was dangerous and whatever, I found out that he had trauma from his castration. Both still physical pain as in back then not being sedated enough. So he consciously went through that. And it made him really stiff in his hind legs. He really wanted to keep his junk <laughs> as quiet as possible. So he, he, he walked really still with his hind legs to, to keep it all as still as possible. So it didn't hurt that much. So after treating that, I already had an 11-year-old horse. And then I could finally start training him. But yeah, it, it needed to be that tailor-made way to really get him to teach him how to use his hind legs properly and, and get the flexibility there and get him the confidence that he could move now and it didn't hurt anymore. How did you So find that was a long journey. How did you find out that it was from the um, and That's an interesting thing. So I want, a lot of horses must go through that. Yes. So yeah, what, yeah, they what definitely, do this? how did you find out? Yeah. So yes, yeah, statistics say it's like one in six horses are still 
in some way suffering from their scar. So how did I find it out? I had a massage therapist with him. She does shihatsu therapy. And she said he, he responds differently than other horses. And that was already when he was 10 or 11. And, and I said, because, you know, I was trying everything. You know, I had saddle maker, vets for his back, whatever. I tried it all. And then I said, well, okay, you know, I have him since he was two and a half. And nothing really special happened. So if there is something, it must have been between his birth or maybe uh, his conception and two and a half. So what happens in that period? His castration. So she, during the massage, she went with her hand towards um, his private parts and he just freaked out. Interesting. Said, okay, the problem is right there. And then I had, I brought him to an holistic vet and I had to put some um, special cream on the scar to, to, to soften the scar tissue. So that was one part of it. And he got like silver pearls, homeopathic pearls well, for the trauma release and uh, I didn't know back then what I saw, but it, it, he started to yawn and, and chew and lick and yawn and yawn more. So now I know what that all means. But back then I didn't. I know the stable owner, she came and stared with me. She said, wow, what's going on here? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> he's being treated. So she already knew more than I at that time. So yeah, that was the start of his healing process. and. He died one day before his 21st birthday, but I got him up to, well, doing all the highest level dressage movements. Well, Kiaf was still crawling, crawling a bit forward, but up to that level. So, yeah, he, he had a, a good life after his 11th birthday. So, but before that, it was a big suffer for him. Yeah. Interesting that you, you and I was grateful that I con continued to search. To, right. uh, sorry, I interrupted you. No, um, I'm just finding it's, it's very interesting that you you had this early trauma yourself, which you then recovered from through horses, and then you ended up with a special needs horse who had had trauma, physical trauma. Yes, uh, but of course the emotional yeah. trauma is obviously a given with that kind of an injury. Uh, yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. injury and invasion, you know. So you said that you found your way through also with the training with him. So beyond, beyond the actual treatment of the injury and the, and, and the trauma, as you said, the release of the trauma, you, you also found your way through um, academic approaches to horse training. When you say the old way, I presume you mean the Baroque way, like the old masters way. Would that be correct? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so what, the, what would you say um, marks that out so differently or particularly differently from the other more modern conventional forms of horse training that we'd see today? What's what's the main difference that you, you would think in terms of the benefit for the horse? Because you're doing it for the horse and not for a test. I, it, it's a, a completely 
different way of thinking. You know, you can you can ride a, a particular exercise because you're up for competing and that exercise needs to be shown in your dressage test. Or you can ride that particular exercise to build up your horse. And I, for me, that's the main difference that I, I see or I always look for what does this horse need and it can be in hand or lunging, liberty, ridden in the long lines. What makes this horse feel better uh, mentally, emotionally? What do they like to do? But also what makes them stronger and, and, and flexible physically? Because so I think the, the different perspective Right, but given that we're all horse nerds, we can we can, on this chat this show we can we can dive in a little deeper. I'm, I'm sure viewers, listeners would like to know what exercises did you do with this horse to create the well-being that hadn't been there. If you can, you remember sort of basic your the basic program that you put him through. I know this obviously would have gone on over a couple of years, but nonetheless, can you sort of summarize for us? What exercises did you do? A, B, C, D, E, and F. How did you build him up in mind and body to well-being? Yeah. So in the beginning, it was a lot of work on the circle. So I could teach him a proper lateral bending and a forward down and a stepping under of the hind leg. And that was his main issue is that he had such lack of flexibility in his hind leg because he was used to working, walking so short. So I really had to teach him that he could lengthen his stride and really step under his belly on the circle to get that flexibility. After the circles, I went to the shoulder in. First, I did a lot of it in hand. So without the weight of, of the rider on top and yeah, so the shoulder in that both trains the lateral bending, the forward down, and the more exaggerated stepping under, we call on three tracks of the inside hind leg. So, and when he could do that, we advanced to the haunches in, which trains again the lateral bending, but in this case, the outside hind leg to step under, which is a where the body is slightly different movement than an inside leg stepping under. And from that, we progressed to half parts and work periods. And in that way, got more collection, more weight to the hind legs. And what I did is after he was good with a particular exercise in hand, I would start doing them ridden as well. So I would add my own weight and get give all the aids from on top instead of from the ground. And that really gave him a lot of confidence because he he knew he could do the move he had the strength and the balance and well with me on top he needed to uh, get a bit more stronger and a bit more balanced but because he already knew what to do it really gave him the confidence to to do those movements and doing more and more of that movement uh, made him stronger and more confident yeah he became a different horse so do you, did you find that the yeah. in his physical strength and suppleness and dexterity, it's really interesting that you say it had a, a, a mental and emotional knock-on effect 
because of course, a lot of people Absolutely. who have encountered, say, sport dressage sort of feel, okay, that's not dressage, that's stressage. You know, it's interesting to hear about the dressage being done really as a therapeutic work for a horse. Would you compare mm -hmm. that, say, to martial arts? Like you could use a martial arts move to fight, or you could also use it to heal an injury you got in a fight, depending on exactly. how the dressage. Yeah how the martial arts teacher was looking at the, is it something similar to that? Yes, absolutely. And, and the other way I compare it to is yoga. Mm. You, you make them flexible and strong in a way that you say, oh, do you really need that in daily life? But because you have that extra strength and extra flexibility, daily life gets much more easy to, to get through. So yeah, it's both the martial arts concept and the yoga concept for me. Okay. That's, that's interesting because obviously in a lot of the therapeutic riding world to date, at least traditionally, that sort of horse training does not seem to have been a part of, of the approaches. In fact, you know, one of the things that struck me quite often when I was looking at it in the early days was that horses were often clearly in pain or, you know, stiff and old and arthritic and had been donated to therapeutic riding places because they were quiet, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but seemed yes. to be hurting in their bodies. And I think, I think a lot of people have seen this. Do you feel, is, is it something unusual, your approach to this equine well-being we're going to go into your 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 equine assisted work in a in a in a moment or do you think this is something mm -hmm. that, that's great is it something that's more there in the netherlands or would you still say within the within that equine assisted world within the netherlands your approach through this kind of old masters yoga for the horse is something a bit unusual where what where do you feel it that now yeah, there's definitely more and more attention for horse welfare in the in the in the assisted quine assisted world in the Netherlands. There are studies being done, there are rules and regulations, of course, because we are the Netherlands. But the this way of training, yeah, I'm I'm definitely pioneering in that. And I'm trying to bring it over to the 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 traditional riding for people with special needs. And there's definitely interest, but we, we have to see how we can build it in because of the time limits, as you well aware of. These horses need to work and there's not always or always not time for extra time for training. So we, we, we are building the system as you uh, taught me uh, through Athena, like, okay, how can we serve the clients and train the horses sort of at the same time? So I'm, I'm getting my feelers out here and there's interested and we are, we're going to start off with the, the horse boy one with those instructors. And from that, we will deepen and widen their knowledge, hopefully in the, in the near future. So, so you feel that one can serve the client and the horse at the same time without there having to be a time conflict in the training. Can the, can the training itself be yes. 
the therapeutic session that you do with a client. Yes, absolutely. Like the, the way we do the, the back riding, the horse moves at least in a healthy way. And if you make a lot of transitions and turns during all the play, uh, you're also training the horse while he is carrying a kid and you on top. Same for long lines. If you, yeah, if you do it in, in, a, in a way that you can serve your client, you can also serve your horse because again, you through the ways that you taught us all, the horse moves in a healthy way. And when you- Can you talk um, to us, uh, how, you on the, how do you use the, the lunging, the, the in-hand work and the long reining when you're serving clients? Can you, for, for, I think for a lot of listeners, this might be something quite new. Can you talk us through like mm -hmm. session where you would be using those techniques as part of the client session? So I think in a lot of people's minds, it's still leading horses around in circles with, with somebody on top. How are you, how yeah. are you using things like lunging, long reining and, and in-hand work when you're serving clients? I think that, that would be really useful for us to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for example, for the, for the long lining, you know, the, ideally you go out on trails. I don't have many here. I can go around the village, but I do a lot of my work in the arena. So yeah, I lose, I use all sorts of play equipment and also the, the, the letters in the arena and uh, I add numbers there and then we can just, yeah, we do games like tag or hide and seek and all kinds of variations in which the horse needs to go to the left or go to the right, do a little trot, do a little walk. I even have one that can do a few canter steps in the long lines. So you get the, the kid on top getting a lot of nice movement in balance, rhythmic, and the horse through all the changes of direction and all the transitions from walk to canter to hold to trot gets his training in the meanwhile. Okay. And so there's a big the difference between that and, and leading the Yeah. So when you're leading the horse, it goes a bit forward, too much forward down. And the child on top or the adult on top will lean forward with that. With, and then they, they have to engage their psoas muscles, which gives them a stress reaction because those, that muscle and that stress reaction is directly connected. So you want the horse to be in a, in a nice horizontal or even a bit heel up position to give the, the person on top the right balance and rhythm. That, um, it's so that you talk while about doing that, yeah. Can you, you said the so if, if they end up, if they tilt yeah. forward and they end up engaging the psoas muscle. Some people might think, oh, well, that's good. They're engaging a muscle. But you said, no, actually that creates a stress reaction. <laughs> why, why is there a connection between yes. tensing up the psoas muscle if the horse is on the shoulders like that and stress? What, what's going on there physiologically? Yeah. So when, when the horse is on the shoulder, so well, we, the, also the, the geeky uh, term is walking downhill. The rider on top or the person on top starts to lean forward to find their balance. And to, to be able to do that, you have to engage your psoas muscle. But that psoas muscle is a very important muscle that is connected to your fight-flight response. 
So when you are in danger, you need to engage that muscle to either flee or start fighting or freeze is another response and a very extreme response is faint. So you, and that creates cortisol, a stress hormone. And that is what our population of clients really struggle of. They have way too much cortisol uh, flowing through their bodies. So we want the other hormone, which is called oxytocin, and that is the happiness hormone or the communication hormone, which helps us to relax and wash out the cortisol. So you need a horse that is at least horizontal and preferably hill up, moving in a hill up or uphill, sorry, kind of way. So that the person um, on top can relax. The yeah. I see. Okay. Exactly. Yes. So that's interesting because I guess in, in, in a lot of the traditional therapeutic environments, it's, it's been the opposite. It's been about leading horses rather than say, putting a horse in the long reins to affect that balance. If yeah. you, and you're putting your clients on top of the horse while they're in the long reins so that they can achieve that oxytocin uh, and response and the release of the psoas muscles. Yes. Is that correct? So that's, that's interesting yeah. work. Do you also, can you get, can you get your clients to a point where they can also be the one, not just sitting on the horse in the long range, but maybe doing the long reining or doing the lunging or doing the in-hand work? Can you, can you, mm-hmm. can you make them part of the team in that way? Yes. So I have a couple of girls who are in their late teens, early twenties, and they really are getting interested in, in, in the horse training part. So with them, yeah, I teach them how to, how to launch and how to do a shoulder in, in hand and how to do a haunches in, in hand. And I tell them what those movements do for the horse. And that really also builds up their own confidence because they are now training a horse. How is that? Yeah. So, and in the meantime, they're moving around a lot outside in nature, helping themselves, getting a lot of happy hormones, the oxytocin, and gaining confidence and becoming a part of a community here that takes care of our horses. So I always boost them up like okay thank you for training my horse and now they can uh, do a better job at um, helping the small children so yeah okay so you're you're old um, and can end up serving your younger clients and the horse at the same time yeah yeah that's what i hope to achieve so now it's still separate they train the horses and the younger teens come at a separate time, but yeah, in the future, I could see that happening, that, that those two moments will start to merge together. That's, that's obviously very evolved work to bring this sold Baroque way of training, maintaining the horse into the therapeutic sphere like this. What got you to make the shift from, okay, I'm a dressage person with my own background in some trauma. I've got this horse that's had trauma and I've healed this trauma. 
I now decided to not go off and become a school principal, but I've been working with special needs kids. One would think, oh, no brainer, you know, to bring all those things together. Yet clearly that happened at a certain point in your life. At what point, when did, when, what year yes. did you make the, the decision, okay, I'm going to pull all this together? It must have been 2013 or 2014 when within a couple of days, one neighbor came to me and said, I read this book. I I'm, got it from the library. You would love it. And it was the horse boy, the Dutch version, of course. And then a few days later, another neighbor came to me. I saw a documentary. It will blow your mind. And again, it was the horse boy. And I was like, okay, this is two times in one week. There's something there. And so I read the book and couldn't get my hands on, on the documentary. But okay, I saw a little clip on YouTube. And, and because I was already in education, really working on the special needs side of the spectrum, um, and seeing more and more kids just not fitting in the normal schools. Um, and my big passion for horses. And then, well, I read about this guy. His name is Rupert Isaacson. And he is teaching children on a horse. And I was like, okay. And then my dressage mentor at the time came to Texas, where Rupert was at the moment. And did a clinic there and they did a webinar together, like reaching out to the community. Okay, if you love training horses, you love special needs kids, come and join us. And then I, I sent an email and I heard nothing back. And I sent another email and I heard nothing back. And then I went to the Facebook page and sent a message there. And then I got an answer like, we've been emailing you, but you didn't get back to us. Like, okay, so... This really took some tenacity to get together. I didn't want to give up and obviously you didn't either. So, and then we met basically at a horse training event in Amsterdam and you did a demo there for Horse Boy 1 and my colleagues, I was already an instructor in that program and my colleagues said, this is, this is your niche. You, you need to talk to this guy because this is totally you. And I was not as brave back then, but I did it. They pushed me towards you and we had a chat and yeah, then everything started to evolve from there. I, I remember the, the, one of the first things you asked me, like, can you arrange my book tour next year? Because your second book came out in the Netherlands. So, and I said, oh, you having no idea what that meant, but uh, I was ready to jump in. So, yeah, then I went to Texas, um, I think early 2015. And yeah, I did all the training upside down. So I started with Horse Boy 5, which is the camps. And you told me later on that was a, a big test because I arrived and you said, okay, dump your big suitcase in a corner, take your small suitcase. We're going on a camp in about two hours. And you told me later on, like, okay, that is a test because if people start to push back and say, no, I need to do horse boy one and then two, and then, and then you would have sent me back to the airport. But yeah, I rolled with it. So I got to stay, which I'm very grateful for. 
us too. Um, so that's how it all started. Right. The, 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 the question though, in my mind is it's a brave step, you know, to say, okay, I'm going to switch careers and I'm going to switch careers yeah. on a, to faith, um, to do something yeah. that's quite difficult to do in a freelance way, self-employed mm. after you've been, you know, employed through the school system, you've had a paycheck, you've had a, you know, and, and suddenly, no, that's a completely, completely different way to, to begin to make one's livelihood. Because, you know, what, what, one of the things one often sees is that, you know, that, that it's a temperament thing that some people are very, very well suited to a sort of entrepreneurial or, or a sort of freelancing, pioneering sort of way of making a living. And other people absolutely are not and need that security. And, but there's, you know, both are equally valid. What made you mm -hmm. take that leap of faith that you felt, yeah, yeah, I can make this work after you'd been in the school system, you, you, you'd had a paycheck, you'd had that safety net. What made you abandon that safety net? Well, I did it gradually. I, I started to cut back my school days and, and on the other side, build up my own business. So I did it in a safe way and, and. I don't know how it is in all the other countries, but in the Netherlands, we have a constant, uh, um, how do you say that, lack of teachers. So I would, I could always fall back to be a teacher again. So for me, that risk didn't feel as big as for some others it could be because, you know, I would always have a job. They would, they are always in need of teachers and especially well, with my experience and with the special needs component, if I say today I would like to work in a school again, I think I will have 10 job offers. So for me, it felt safe enough. And on the other side, my husband has paycheck every month. So yeah, we, we felt like we could, we could do this. And yeah, there are months, years that I don't get to buy any new clothes for myself. I, luckily I'm not a I'm not a very needy person in that way. So I so I don't get to spend a lot of money on me. But yeah, that's fine. I love to be in service and not very high maintenance myself, luckily. So yeah. So you 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 dive in, you start your therapeutic program tell us about the how you got that off the ground because a, a lot of people will be listening who are considering making that leap what were the first tell us the stories of those those first years who were who were the clients that jump out at you in your memory what what was the type of client you were mainly finding yourself meeting what were the challenges both in terms of the organization of it and in terms of your horses and that sort of thing, that what the unexpected stuff. So, you know, who did you find in front of you as a client? How did you get it going? And yeah, what were the challenges? How did you meet them? Yeah. So in the early days, most of my clients were either very young and nonverbal kids with autism. And for me, the biggest challenge, the very biggest challenge was to get over myself and start asking for help because this 
you can't do by yourself. It's not possible. So it took me a long time to, to get my act together and start asking for help. And the funny thing is I, I posted something on Facebook like, okay, I'm going to do this. Who would like to, to volunteer here and there? And I got like within an hour, six horsey people I knew from back way when or from now that says, yes, I would like to help with that. So that was a big challenge for me because I was so used to doing everything by myself. So that was a big uh, thing for me. So yeah, the, the challenges of these first couple of kids, yeah, becoming verbal, which is, it's still miraculous every time you see it happen. Yeah, luckily we never get used to that. It never becomes normal because it is special. Where was but, the yeah, that seeing, verbal um, per- like that with the horse? Talk talk to us about that that moment and what 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 was happening with that child? That story. He was a boy, uh, the very first one. His parents called him a runner. They were actually afraid to to come because he would just run away. Everywhere and anywhere. He was obsessed with traffic signs. So if there was a traffic sign somewhere around, he just runs towards it. So, and he had such a a tunnel vision for that, that the first session we did in, in an indoor arena with, with complete walls. So there was nothing to crawl uh, through. Also to, to keep the, the parents assured that that kid could not escape. And but the, the the funny thing was in that session I had my horse in there, just standing there with some hay, and he just did not see her. And well, you know my mare, she's white and she's got spots and uh, like the Pippi Longstocking horse. So she, you really can't miss her. But he didn't see her. That was for me mind blowing. And then the second time I put a traffic sign on her halter, like the the triangle sign says, beware of horses. And then he saw her. And then he started to to interact with with her. That was uh, a moment I will never forget. Like, okay, how can you not see a complete horse? But he, yeah. So, and then... He was not okay with riding with me. So I put him in the long lines on in the saddle together with his dad. And we just rode through the forest. We had traffic signs with us. For example, the sign for the blue sign for going left or right. And we presented to them, to him. And so he could make choices like, would you like to go left or right here or straight ahead? And first he started pointing. And later on, he would would say the words like left, right, or he would, I would ask him questions like, would you like to walk? Would you like to trot? And then he would say trot. And then we trotted a bit. So through those choices we gave him with the traffic signs, we, we gave, he started to, to use his first words. And also another very important traffic sign for him was the stop sign because, well, we needed to make it safe if he would go uh, on a walkabout around his house, his parents needed him to stop, you know, at, at the curb. 
before just running in front of a car. So we used a traffic sign to specifically teach him how to stop. So we would just hold up the sign and yell like, and because of that sign, he would, he would go with it. Without a sign, you could stop for, well, as long as you want. But because of that sign, he, he, he was into it and we got to teach it. And um, later on, his parents could make a sequence of traffic signs around their home. Because what happened is because he was so into the traffic signs, he would just go, go, go. And then he was tired. And then they had to carry him all the way home so they could uh, make routes in their neighborhood that wouldn't be too long for him and he would end up at home. So they make like treasure hunts for, for signs, but they knew exactly which route it was. So, yeah. And then he evolved to makes of cars. So, and in the place I was working, it was a riding school and a camping site. So we had a lot of cars also on site. So we would start talking about all these makes and models of cars and reading the the plate numbers of the cars. So yeah, that's how we got him to to speak. And also he was very into Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So he sang those songs endlessly. And yeah, that helped him become verbal. So you really tailored it to his interests. That yes. What's interesting too is you said you know when he didn't he did he only wanted to get up there with his dad, mm-hmm. and that that's obviously quite an unusual approach for a lot of therapeutic places because you know they wouldn't they wouldn't put a parent up you know to make it safe for a child and then you you use the long reins to sort of basically create an equine environment for the father and the son yeah to be up exactly. there together that's wonderful yeah so first we we just yeah. First, we just put up the dad and we just walk around the play area uh, at the campsite and the dad would be on top and the kid would be, I don't know, on the trampoline or something. And then uh, we stopped next to the trampoline. and Like that. Exactly. So show that that dad enjoys it and that horses can be ridden. You know, if you've never been around a horse, who knows, you can sit on top of them. So and then at one moment we stopped like straight next to the trampoline and the dad invited him to give him a hug and there he was he was sitting on top too and it was first for a couple of seconds he started to wiggle a bit okay put him back on the trampoline and then the the next time he would just sit and we could just go and we went off to into the forest and yeah you could actually see his all expression in his face change as soon as he was on the horse. It was actually a, a former school colleague of mine that came to, to volunteer and watch it one time. She was a kindergarten teacher since forever. And she said, this kid just totally changed when he sat on a horse. I'm like, okay, cool. Because, you know, I walk behind. <laughs> I see the back of the deck. Oh, cool information. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. That yeah, and another story is another young kid who started talking with me, and Mum told his speech therapist, and she didn't believe it because uh, at speech therapy he did not talk, 
So I said to mom, bring the speech therapist with you next Saturday. And well, the brave lady did. And the cool outcome was that from that moment on, she didn't do her speech therapy in her office, but in the playground next door. So yeah. So she, 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 she actually moved it going and, outside with the kid after watching you work. Exactly. So she, she changed her whole approach with him and hopefully other kids after That's him. That's uh, so yeah. So yeah. Well and, and it was, it was cool that she, she came out to in her own time without anybody paying her to come and see what we were doing. So yeah, that was, that was another cool experience. And the other, one of the early girls that really sticks in my mind is, was an eight year old one and she couldn't take perspective. So she had high levels of anxiety. For example, when her mom left the room, she, when her mom was out of sight, she thought mom was dead. So usually around two and a half, three years, kids start to understand that if they can't see something, it's still there, like peekaboo, games like that, hide and seek. But this girl never got through that milestone. So during the intake and all the questions we asked beforehand, we kind of figured that out together with mom. So we started to do all the games and all our activities around perspective taking. And it was so cool. It was actually filmed because a colleague of mine was doing her thesis on horseboy method. So she filmed every session. And during session three, halfway, the girl was making a drawing and she turned it around and showed her dad and said, okay, dad, look, that's you. And that is me and that's mom and that's my little brother and my colleague and I I remember so clearly I she was filming over my shoulder I looked at her she looked at me like wow she got it now she she now understands that um if you want to show something to somebody you need to take turn it around but of course it's much bigger than that because mom told us that she could leave the room now and she could take the walkie-talkie up to the attic and do some laundry while the kid was downstairs playing. And that was impossible. They went to the cinema. The girl just walked away from her, went to the big poster and start talking to another girl about the movie. She, yeah, it changed their whole world. Just that working on that one milestone. Yeah. Was huge for that family. So being a part of those changes for families changes for the better it's what makes it all worthwhile you know scooping poo in the mud and all of that, all about that. <laughs> i do it happily poo, yes. <laughs> for those moments yeah I'm in germany at the moment yeah uh well, well there's a couple of things that, that stand out so you, you you casually mentioned that first day oh we just you know long lined the horse up to the trampoline and of course the kid must have been bouncing pretty hard on the trampoline mm-hmm and you, yeah. you you casually got there with your horse, and that means you must have done quite a lot of bomb proofing training with your horse. That that's that you must have done a lot Absolutely. of training. Yeah, this. Yes. So everything we think could happen during what we call play dates, we train. Um, 
There was one time a volunteer surprised me and it bit me in the butt. Uh, she pulled out a soap bubble thingy and starting to blow uh, soap bubbles, which my horse had never seen before. And luckily, it was my daughter on the horse and not a client, but my horse spooked. So that was a- another lesson. <laughs> like, okay, if you have volunteers, make sure that they ask you before they do something. <laughs> Because, you know, you need to have checked that your horse is okay with it. So, yeah, they need to be brave. And my mare is actually not the bravest, but she she is trained to be okay with a lot. But, yeah, for in that case, I like the alpha horses the best for this work because they are brave and used to problem solving. And they're usually okay with with new things. So you show them and they're like, What's this? Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's the kind of horse I prefer to work with. I have one here now, one out of four. He's a superstar, but, you know, with the others, we work too. But, you know, I always have to uh, be very aware that they, yeah, you know, no horse is 100% bomb-proof. They don't exist, but you can get them to a very high level. But uh, it takes constant... Uh, training. So I put weird objects in and around my arena or or paddock like tarpaulin that's just going everywhere. What? Yeah, whatever I can figure. And I do like my leaf blowing of the arena right where they standing next to it in the paddock. So they're all used to big noises and stuff. So and yeah, going kind of it away. takes. Sorry? And you keep that sort of going all the time. Do you, do you have that as sort of a constant so they're always exposed to this sort of thing? The horses. Yes. You know, I'm. What, what I usually do is just I, we do whatever we need to do and we're not like, oh, we can't do this because the horses are there without the clients, of course. You know, when the clients are not here, we just do the leaf blowing and mowing the lawn and driving around with a tractor and do whatever needs to be done. Uh, because you know they're safe in there and of course we keep our eye on them and when they spook we give them some time but yeah it's we we treat them like okay this is normal we we are used to this so and every now and again I introduce something new just to keep them flexible in their minds like oh what's that and and you you can tell you know one horse just looks at it and goes sniffle and he's okay with it. And the other one runs away <laughs> as far as he can. And then a few days later, he goes to meet that new thing. So, yeah. But but uh, do you find that with introducing new yeah, stuff, you, you have to keep it going as a constant. I mean, that that's def- definitely something we've found is that when it comes to keeping our horses bomb proof, we, we can't assume. Yes. Because they met a red umbrella and were okay with it three months ago. That they don't have amnesia yeah. about that yeah. three months afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. And and the the one upside of me not having my pasture on my own terrain, but I have to walk down the street through the village, is that they see traffic twice a day. And you know, it's tractors, big trucks, cyclists, umbrellas, or when a new girl is born, there are pink flags uh, at the, in, in the street or when there's carnival, you know, 
the garbage cans. So they see that every day and we never know what we see. You know, some things are always there and some drive by as a surprise. So that's kind of like for the big stuff, a constant. Yeah. Right. I, 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 think I, I prefer to call it bravery training, by the way. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's a great word. It's something which I think isn't talked about enough with bombproofing, bravery training, uh, desensitization. People have these different names for it. Is that often the, mm -hmm. I, there's an assumption, yeah. do it once, that's it. And of course, what I found, and I guess you must have found over the years too, is that no, actually one needs to kind of do refreshers fairly regularly um, yes. or yeah. The horses can decide. No, actually, I'm scared of that thing. I wasn't scared of, you know, 10 minutes ago. That yeah, something else. very true. But, you know, that kind of thoroughness of training, I think, is something unusual within the equine assisted world. I think that quite often I've seen people really working within sort of bubbles. And then, of course, if something unforeseen happens, which inevitably it's going to at some point, and particularly if one's working, mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, an or an autistic population or, or somewhere the, the client themselves is mm -hmm. going to do something pretty unpredictable that then it, the horse may or may not be ready for that. And it's, 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 it's a wonderful thing that you, you're covering those bases, you know, from the get go. There was something else which ju jumped out to me about that first story. So you said, you know, on that first day that he was in there, you had the horse available. There's the horse eating hay there in the arena. Okay. There's wall. So the kid, can't run away from the arena, but he's running. When he wasn't going to interact with the horse that first day, what was your strategy? What what did you do to get interaction with him? Say, okay, well, if the horse isn't going to work, what 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 other tricks have I got up my sleeve? What 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 did you do to establish relationship? Yes, well, it started with the preparation. We didn't have an empty arena. So with the jumping poles and cones and traffic signs, we made streets and junctions. So when he came in and he saw that play area, he was instantly in play. So all we had to do is shadow him and, and verbalize what he was doing and what he was seeing. Um, so you set what, up the, the street my experience in the arena before he went in. Yes, exactly. So we, we tailor make the environment uh, as part of the, the preparation before the kids come. So when they come, they come in this place where they love to be. And it can be anything and everything. It, it depends on their interest. So do you find out from the family before they come out what the passionate interests or obsessive interests of the the child are yes yeah so yeah we we do an intake uh, with the parents so we have a very extensive chat with them where we make notes where we want to know anything and everything like what does he like what does he what is he afraid of which sensory triggers are nice for him which one are not and the main thing is, of course, uh, the two things is what are his interests and what are the goals? Because we always use like the interest as a sort of wrapping paper around the goals. So the kids never know that they were working on goals. They just play their favorite thing 
And then in the meantime, we as adults work on the goals specific to that child. Delphi. So yeah, the Delphi. kid come to play and there are horses and you can sit or lie on top of horses and you can ride them, but not necessarily. So a lot of it is also just playing outside, having a, a safe and natural environment where the kids can explore and do whatever they like to do best. So Most, if, if they're not going to interact with the horse, if they don't want to get on the horse, you have plenty of other stuff for them to do. Yes. Yeah. We have swings, trampolines. We have a pond so they can fish. They, you know, yeah, all sorts of play equipment. So, yeah, they don't have to interact with the horses. They are available. But if they are into other stuff, then that's what we'll do. That's... So I have like two brothers. They 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 love to play soccer. So we start with that. And then I introduce a big yoga ball. And then we play soccer with the horse. But if they're not into that, yeah, okay, you tried. <laughs> Again, that's that's really unusual because you're talking about a level of training through the in hand work, the, the long reining, the the lunging, as you've said, the 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 bomb proofing or bravery training, as you call it, that requires a bit of an obsessive, you know, horseman's approach and then mm -hmm. you know, you're willing to abandon the horse in a moment if that's not what the kid wants to do and you've got other things to stimulate the yeah. learn i i think that that's yeah. remarkable because as you and i know i mean most of us who are in the horse world i'm I, i'm guilty as charged we're such horse <laughs> obsessives it's hard for us to necessarily move away from the horse if if that's not where the person is mm. and to be able to yeah put that kind of level of detail into the preparation of the horse, yet not be attached to them interacting with the horses is, is unusual. Mm -hmm. Do you find that yeah. it's easy to train your volunteers and your, your colleagues in this because they presumably also have to have the same approach to the horse training? Or do you find that this is something that you have to teach horse people a skill really to, to not be so attached to the horse while at the same time being really attached to the paradoxically to the to the preparation of the horse do you find this is a hard concept for people well part of when they start i always introduce them to the eight guidelines of movement method and horse boy method so you know as a main thing follow the child i i always say it as soon as the the child comes through the gates they they do what they do and and we interact with them and we see what they're doing and we play with them and you know we we try to set this up so they will engage in activities we have um thought of could help with their goals but the the kid is in charge and that for some is a very new concept because, well, especially in the Netherlands, there are many rules and regulations and, well, school system generally around the world is, okay, teacher tells you what to do and you do it. Or at home, parents tells you what to do and you do it. And so to totally reverse that, but I find it that because you totally reverse it, uh, they get it. So we don't do something in between. 
we just say, okay, kids in charge and we follow. And I always get them to observe one or two sessions. And then I say, okay, now you can be a more active part. And I always, always as well say when the kid starts to approach you, of course, you can interact. You can't just stay there and say, okay, I'm only a blob servant today. So uh, if they seek you out for interaction, you interact. Uh, and I will be there and guide you through it. So, yeah, to, to totally reverse that concept of being uh, a leader uh, normally, but now give that leadership to the child. Yeah, they usually get it. And also because they they see the joy and and of the children and they see it working. You know, you, you see that it works. So you don't have to question it. And the involvement of parents and family and other other therapists is, again, quite unusual. I mean, a lot of the places I've, I've gone to watching work is everything's kept very separate. When you're integrating like mm-hmm. that, obviously, I can totally see what, why that would work so well. Do you ever find that it can be tricky? Like, do you find sometimes that a parent might get pushy with the kid saying, oh, you know, do what Miss Corolla mm-hmm. is saying? Or... A therapist might, another therapist might say, no, no, that's wrong. We should do it my way. Or do you, do you find on the whole, actually people integrate really well? What, what's been your experience, positive and negative with that? Well, the positive is because I, I explained the, the eight guidelines as well as to the parents, you know, also of course the, the, the neuroscience behind what we do but also the volunteers and the colleagues and okay this is how we work here this is how we do it and usually they 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 just go with it and the, there's one time uh, i later found out that this was a dad with narcissism i didn't know at the time but he he despite me explaining the neuroscience and the eight guidelines he just the first couple of times he went with it and then he he decided that I was wrong and he was right. So, yeah, that that family didn't no longer come because the boy also, you know, loyalty to dad. If dad says it's not fun, we're not going anymore. But he turned out to have a, a narcissistic uh, personality disorder. So that was the one time I was like, okay, I don't know. If I would have more knowledge about narcissism, if I could have avoided that situation, but his ex-wife said he had X, Y, Z therapist, and he all went two or three times to that person and just went away again. So I wasn't the only one. Um, so that one still puzzles me a bit. Like, okay, could I have handled that differently? But usually, it's they respond very positively to the approach we have. So here's another question. I know that the Netherlands is a little bit like the, like Germany where I am, where in some ways it's really good that you'll it, there's, there's, there's understanding from within government of, of the value of equine assisted work. But at the same time, unless one goes through, you know, very, very set pathways, which then can end up being quite constraining to find the funding. How do you find the funding? Because you're very much pioneering, you know, this much more child-led approach. 
How, how do you find the funding to make that happen within the Netherlands system? I think a lot of people would be quite yeah to know. Yeah. So in the Netherlands, every municipal is um, responsible for the well-being for everybody who lives um, um, in their community. So the funding is very decentralized. So it used to be through the, the national government. Now it's with the municipals. And, well, they went through a learning curve and now decided that it's for them easier to only work with big contractors, so with big mental health care organizations. So for people like me who are independent, what we now have to do, so like before I could be like a main contractor for my municipal, that changed now. So now I have to find a big organization to be a subcontractor with. So you have to partner up and subcontract. Okay. Yes, exactly. And then every municipal has like a, a welfare team. So when there's a kid who has challenges, the family can go to the to the welfare team and they get a counselor and with the family and the counselor they see which which kind of care uh, guidance would be helpful so the other thing is i need to get myself known with those welfare counselors so they know that i exist because i'm a subcontractor so i'm not like on the big list so yeah, that takes some time for people to get to know you. And then when you have some successful clients with very happy parents, happy clients and goals met, then your name starts to, to get around. So it, it, it takes time to, to make yourself known and the, the paperwork takes time. And, and yeah, you really need to, to dig into it. Some choose to not work with the funding and say, I only take private clients so that, that the parents fund it themselves. I do have some, but for me, I find it very important to keep collaborating with my local municipals because otherwise the kids of the people who can't afford it, which are usually the kids who need it most, I don't get to serve if I only do the private funding so for me i'm really really invested a lot and still investing a lot because i just moved to this place one and a half year ago it's uh sort of besides my earlier area so i need to invest in getting to know all the uh, local welfare counselors here to get my name out so yeah it's it takes a lot of tenacity, but for me, it's worth it and important to to especially need uh, reach those kids that need it the most. So, what you're talking about here is is a sort of bureaucratic stuff yes. you've got to do on top of mm -hmm. running of the barn, the you know looking after the horses, the training of the horses, the obviously the serving the clients. That, you know, and you've you've bootstrapped this up independently over a decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, what about burnout? I mean, this has been a <laughs> lot of a lot of work, a lot of responsibility. 
Have you experienced that? And if so, what have you done about it? Because I think this is something that faces a lot of people that are getting into yes. this. Yeah. And what would your advice be? Yes. So, yes, that happened. Christmas 2020, we drove home from my mom's and I just started to cry. And I had no idea why and, and I couldn't stop. So, after some time, I met with a psychiatrist and I had the very nasty combo of depression with burnout. And which is tricky because for depression, they say, okay, go out, move, be in nature. But with burnout, if you do one step too many, you take three steps back. So to balance that out was a very tricky and long way to come back from. And well, at first I definitely couldn't do without the medication. So I started with that. And they knocked me off my feet every time I had to go up my dosage. I, it took me a month to, to get regulated again. So that in itself was a very, yeah, hectic time. And yeah, I slept and I slept and I slept and I was up for about a couple of hours a day. I drove to my horses, usually crying. To went there, took care of them and drove back. I could hear one playlist of music. Uh, I couldn't um, bear anything else. So, and, you know, I, I ate some and I took care of my daughter and that was it. And the rest I slept. And so I that was a dark did, time. How long did that, that, that really extreme crisis time last? I would say about a half year before, so, yeah. In that time, you presumably had to put your therapeutic work on pause. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't work. So luckily I'm a, a member of what we call in Dutch a broodfonds, which translates to bread fund. It's a, a group of entrepreneurs who put money aside in a locked savings account. And when some or anybody out of that group gets ill, we donate money to each other. That's, um, that's something, yeah. is that a tradition within the Netherlands? It's, it's new-ish, but it's, it's, it's way cheaper and better than your disability insurance because especially in the horse business, I, I tried to insure myself and it would have cost me 800 euros a month. Okay. So, <laughs> because I work with horses. That's a high-risk business. Ah, yes. So so through this Broodfonds, you know, we, we help each other and we also have network meetings. So we, we know each other. So that makes it uh, more like a, a tribe thing or a community thing. Like, okay, we take care of each other. It's not this big insurance company who gets to make a lot of money over our backs. And, um, is, there, is there any sort of government or oversight over the pulp fund? I mean, are they, or is it just like, what's to stop somebody from running off with the money? Or like, how's that organized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, all the, you know, everybody has their own savings account, but they're locked. So I can't get money out of it. So I can put money into it every month, but only the secretary of the treasurer of our broad fund can get money of get it gets 
yeah. Gives notice to to the big organization. So like, okay, this person needs a donation, and it's all all in. Um, you know, you when you make a lot of money, you, you donate more than when you make a little bit of money, you donate a bit less, and then or put less in your savings account. So it's all like balanced out. Like, and was this um, a fund that already existed, or was this something you put together with with a group? No, no, no. It's it's an existing thing in the Netherlands. So used to pay into. Yeah. I see. So you, you pay like a monthly fee or a, no, you pay yourself in your closed bank account. You pay yourself, but the, the treasurer can get money out of it to help my colleagues. Got it. And that, the, and so there's sort of legal oversight of this. Yes. It's all with, with the taxes and everything that's all figured out. So oh, it's no, all. How long has this been a, a thing in the Netherlands? I don't know. I should have. I should look that up. But like, yeah, there are quite for a girl, or is it be like twenty years, or what, what do you think? I heard about it just before I joined because I saw this thingy that there was a meeting for new members to oh. to to tell us, you know, what is this about and. I was like, okay, I don't have an insurance yet. Maybe this is a it good was, idea. Used to you when you first heard about it. Yes. Okay, so maybe it's something relatively recent within. Yeah. That's twenty years. I don't know. Maybe five to ten years. Or so okay. I, I'd have okay. to look it out. But that's really that's really interesting. I'd be actually. I just sort of want to do a bit of a, a heads up then to the the listeners. Listeners, do you have? If you're listening from another country, is there anything similar to this? Because I have not heard of this before. I no. can't, I don't think this exists within the UK. I certainly don't think this exists within the USA. I haven't heard of it in Germany. Maybe it's there. Tell us if it is, because this is, this is really useful information, I think, yes. for people who are doing this sort of work that we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the Broadfonds, they, they kept me alive while I was sick. That, that's the, the, the conclusion of this of this talk about the Broadfonds. They, when I was sick, I, they, all the other members donated to me every month so I could uh, keep eating and feeding my horses. And if, if that hadn't be, I had to sell them all and uh, probably ended back up in, in the school somewhere again. So they, they really saved my butt. So, and of Okay, so then by the time you ended up, you know, opening for business again, mm -hmm. when you felt that you had gone through some recovery, did you find that having spent some time effectively as a client, um, rather than as a provide a service user, rather than a service provider, if you like, mm -hmm. did that did that deepen and inform your practice, your equine assisted practice? How, yeah. You, what uh, yeah. wisdom did that bring? Yeah, it 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 makes you more aware of what families deal with, go through. You know, I had the trauma for when I was young, but you know, I was over that. I dealt with it, so it kind of goes to the back of your mind. But going through this and also dealing with the doctors and the medicine and the psyche, the psyche psychiatrist, and that is, yeah, obviously, and also the process of getting diagnosed. It turned out that one of the 
the main reasons I got so burned out and depressed is I turned out to have ADHD, which was undiagnosed. And, you know, especially people my age, that was a boy's thing, right? That girls have ADHD is, well, not when I was young. That was not common knowledge. I don't even know if boys were diagnosed back then or they were just busy and irresponsible and always up to something. So that really helped me heal because I now could figure out like admin work was like horror for me. I couldn't get anything done. You know, my mind went everywhere. I had my to-do list and at the end of the morning I had done nothing or at least completed nothing. So that was one of the big frustrations and, and causes of my burnout. And there was Murphy's Law. There was all kind of stuff going on. But anyway... Going through that again with the diagnosis process and dealing with the doctors and the medication, yeah, it really gave me a deeper sense of like, okay, this is what these families have to deal with. And they usually don't come to me first. You know, they have usually tried anything and everything before they get tipped off that this also exists because it's not so well known yet. So yeah, it it really has deepened my understanding. And also it it's urged me to seek other forms of healing for myself. So what so in the beginning I couldn't work with my horses, you know, from the medication I got so dizzy so I couldn't lunge a horse, I couldn't sit on a horse. But as soon as I could, I had to change perspective again, you know, I normally I ride to train my horses. And now my horses had to help me. So I started to ride for me. And that was a new experience for me because I was always so focused on this horse needs this. So we're going to do this particular training today. And But luckily, because I did that, I had horses who could carry me and ride for me. So that was a big thing that helped me turn it around. And the other thing I met was a thing called TRE, that is Tension or Trauma Releasing Exercises. A lady I know, she already told me about it, that she did that. My time wasn't there yet. But then I saw, okay, I think I want to try it because I got to a, a level like, okay, I can function again. But there was like this plateau. I couldn't get any further than that. And... Then I started the TRE sessions with her and that just um, helped me so much. What it basically is, you do a couple of exercises to exhaust your muscle groups and then you either stand against the wall or you lay down and you start to tremble. And with that trembling, trauma uh, trembles out of your cells. That's like the short of it. Oh, and yeah, which like is like when a hunted deer goes gets the shakes after getting away. exactly exactly like babies and animals they do it themselves okay we as people have learned that that is weird behavior somewhere so we stopped doing it but it's it's a natural thing and when your body knows how to do it again without feeling awkward <laughs> It's, it's very healing. So because trauma gets in all your cells, it's not just in your brain. It's, it's so for me, 
what first happened is all my old physical traumas, like my knee and my ankle and my calf, they all started to dissolve. Mm. You know, they, they were usually okay, but when you get really tired, you feel it. I, I, I'm sure you know it's like you're, when you're really tired, like, oh yeah, that injury over there is now bugging me. Mm. That's gone. That was the first thing that happened. And then my, yeah, my mind just opened up. There was room for new space. I could read again. I could study again. That was all not possible. I couldn't do anything new uh, before that. So yeah, that was a big thing for me. And then the icing on the cake is after a five-year search, we found this new home uh, with on a little plot. So it's a, a tiny little farm where I can finally have my, my horses and my practice at home. Yeah, that was the icing on the cake. Because and my for a long time, finally... working out of a, a, another riding stable. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which was cool for quite a while, but the, the long-standing wish is to just have my own place. Mm. You know, because, you know, when you're in a riding stable, there are other people that ride there and, and yeah. you always have to compromise and, and do a lot of planning. And here, it's just, it's me, you know, I can do whatever, whenever. Uh, and it takes a lot of work <laughs> that yeah. comes with it. <laughs> but, you know, I do it for ourselves. It's our own place. So, and I love to be outside. And yeah, yeah that, that, that's something definitely which I've experienced both sides of. You know, for years and years, I had my own, we had our own place in Texas. And then mm -hmm. to Germany, you know, young kids. So suddenly it's like, well, no, let's not immediately start another farm. Let's work out of a riding stable and that was it it worked we we, we mm -hmm. learned how to dance that dance that you're talking about um around other people whose attitudes and horses may not be quite as attuned to um the needs of the clients as as, as one might alight and now i'm back to having my own place again and, and can control the environment and there's definitely i'm very very glad i went through that education process of Mm -hmm. uh, no longer being complacent that and and being able to understand that when people are working out of riding stables which a lot of people have to how much kudos to give them that they can get that work done you know ar dancing around other people but yes it's it's definitely so much nicer if one can have control so now you there you are you you you've come through you you built the thing then you collapsed then you built it up again and here you are now, here you are stronger than ever with your own operating out of your own place, doing this cutting edge work. I also know that you have recently, despite being a maverick and having gone outside of the regular, you know, therapeutic riding associations, systems and so on, as many of us have and have made it work, you have now actually begun a collaboration with the Royal Dutch Horse Association, which would be the equivalent in the UK of the British Horse Society or Horse Spot Ireland or the US Equestrian Federation, you know, the, the, uh, you've suddenly found yourself, interestingly, back with the mainstream. Can you tell us a bit about this collaboration? What is it? What's it doing? And how, how how'd you get? So what we has just have established recently is a new collaboration with our Royal Dutch Horse Association, which for the Dutchies is KNHS. We 
now have jumped through enough hoops to become part of the mandatory training for continuous professionalization for instructors. So in the Netherlands, you become an instructor, but then you have to keep up your knowledge and skills. So there is a select group. No, not a group. It, well, there are a, a select, selected courses you can do to, to get points to, to keep your license as an instructor. And just last week, we uh, got the notification that we are approved for that program for Horseboy Method 1. So which means that now we can bring Horseboy Method 1 into the riding schools, the general riding schools, of course, but especially the riding schools for special needs people. So the therapeutic riding center. And what really for me has been a drive to do that is what we talked about earlier is that uh, sometimes what we see in those riding centers, it's, it's the calm, older horses that work there, but they, they have their issues and that's why they're quiet. That can be. But what we also see is that the horses don't get better from that work. They get worse. So they get worn out at some point. So to reverse that, or at least help to keep those horses in better shape or get them in better shape, I'm very passionate about bringing horse boy method to those riding schools. So they can see a new way, another way, which doesn't take more time, but it is so much better for the welfare for the horse, but also because of the oxytocin effect we talked about earlier, will get more benefits for the riders. So yeah, it's very exciting. We're going to start training in uh, February at a therapeutic riding center. So yeah, it, I hope it's going to be a success and uh, get the word out that there is another way which helps to yeah, to have the horses happier and healthier and get better results. So, yeah, you you have to be the maverick and then in the Netherlands also be willing to go back into mainstream and see if you can, on the edges of mainstream, make the mainstream a bit wider. So, edging, the next big project. Edging the mainstream's comfort zone a little further out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just nudging them out of their comfort zone. So, yeah, I am very excited about that. Well, that's a, quite an achievement and quite an achievement to come back because, you know, you, you said that the burnout, you know, which happened in 2020, you know, th if that was taking sort of a year or so to, to. No, closer to two right. years. Yeah. Yeah. So really get back from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I mean, most burnouts, it's at least a two year period. And then to, to, to surge back like this, new farm, new place, collaboration with the Royal Dutch Horse Society, with their continuing education process. That's, that's, you know, hats off to you, Corolla. That's Thank you. really something. Yeah. We are coming out of, to, towards wrap up time. Um, mm -hmm. 
Is there any way people can contact you, whether for trainings, whether for inspiration, whether for advice, whether for obviously if they want to um, bring their children or uh, young adults to you as clients? How do people contact you? Um, where do they find you? Yeah. Okay. There are several ways. Of course, I have my own website, carolabeekman.nl. I'm on Facebook as Carola Beekman. How do you spell carolabeekman.nl? Oh, yeah. C A R O L A and then B E E K M A N dot N L. Okay. So the same for Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn. And we also have a Facebook page called Horseboy the Netherlands. I'm one of the admins there. So if you reach out to there, you will get me directly or people will refer you to me. And there is a brand new website, totally Dutch, that's called movementmethod.nl. We have been working on that with five, six colleagues for a while now. And it's not completely finished, but it's up. And so on the contact page, of course, you can also reach me and that's info at movementmethod.nl. So yeah, that's how people can find me. And of course, through the ntls.co website, I'm on the providers page and also on the trainers page. And I give you a little bit, so, I just want to, I want to do a little big ups for the, for the, for the listeners. In terms of not just the work with the with, with special needs, which I know you're extremely good at, you're also a very, very good producer of horses in your own right. And Carola has been very modest in the course of this uh, interview, listeners, but she's, she, she, she mentioned very briefly some of the international work she's done. But one thing I can say is that I know relatively few people who can really rehab and muscle horses to the extent that I have seen Carola do it. Corolla, I've seen you take a number of horses which were absolutely messed up in the back and in the hocks and in the stifles and turn them around into meta horses. And um, a lot of people who know the work that I do with horses know that, for example, with my lunging work, I am a absolute flag flying user of side reins, et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, there's always this controversy between should you use side reins or should you not? But I can absolutely say that Corolla is one of the few people I've seen who, without the use of the side reins, can absolutely, absolutely miraculously turn a horse around in, in terms of its muscling and in the, in the lunging. And the, the reason I'm saying all this is that if you're, if you're looking for help, advice, training, don't just go through the, it's not confined to the equine assisted work that she does. I really would wholeheartedly recommend Corolla because she's not going to say it herself. So I'm bigging her up now. I would really wholeheartedly recommend you, Corolla, if someone's got a horse that needs um, training or rehabbing, whether or not you're in the Netherlands, because I know that you can do this. She also hasn't said this because she's too modest. I know that she can do this long distance through WhatsApp and online training programs. So give us your give us your website again, Corolla. CarolaBeekman.com. Okay, very Carola. So, in, if for English, you just call or you just spell Beekman, then Beekman, you get it right. Beekman, and it's, and it's all yeah. it's all little letters, right? CarolaBeekman.com. Yes, yes, and there is an English section on my Dutch website. So, for all the horse training stuff. So, yeah. 
So do reach out to her people because she, she, she does know her stuff. And I have watched a number of horses that were not, I would say, the most obvious contenders turn under Corolla's tutelage into, like I said, meta horses, including that black and white spotted mare, which uh, she referred to, which was probably one of the weakest backed horses I've ever seen mm -hmm. when you first got it. And the way you turned that horse around was frankly, you know, as astonishing. So hats off to you. Uh, um, Thank you. Pleasure. All right. Any last words before we, before we sign off? No, just thank you for having me. And yeah, please reach out if you want help or advice or coaching. I'm, I'm very eager and happy to share all the knowledge. Well, thank you for coming on, on the show. We're going to head out now and get horses in from the field in the rain and take yeah. them back to, I'm sure you're going to do the same thing because it's really yes. crazy here in Northern Europe at the moment and has been for the last six weeks. I'm sure some of the listeners will know exactly what we're talking about. And we look forward to just keeping tabs on your work and seeing how you develop further. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure to chat. Likewise. Okay. Speak soon. Speak soon. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.